Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads, Season 3, Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty. I am reading this off Scribd.com, S-C-R-I-B-D.com, and as with all the other books that I've read so far, this has a lot of images in it, and I highly recommend to either find a physical copy or get an electronic copy so you can see the images that are in the book. They're pretty incredible. I'll do my best to describe some of them. However, as we all know, a picture is worth a thousand words. Before we begin with today's Chapter 6, Rock Chambers of New England, I just want to thank you guys and let you know that I really appreciate you guys listening and on whatever platform you're choosing to listen to this on. And with that said, let's get into the chapter. Quote, Rules of Reasoning and Philosophy, Rule 2. We are certainly not to relinquish the evidence of experiments for the sake of dreams and vain fictions of our own devising, nor are we to recede from the analogy of nature, which is wont to be simple and always consonant to itself. End quote. Sir Isaac Newton, The System of the World. North Americans tend to think of megalithic structures as something you have to go overseas to experience. The truth is that two-thirds of the U.S. population live within a few hours' drive of one. Just one hour north of New York City lie some exceptional examples, and we are grateful to the scientific investigators who first introduced us to the energetic nature of these structures. Dr. Bruce Cornett is a geologist whose paleontological discoveries were hailed by Discover Magazine as one of the top 100 science stories in the late 90s. In his spare time, he and Connecticut scientist teacher Phil Imbrogno studied reports of unusual lights in the area. Cornet and Imbrogno worked in the Hudson River Valley, New York, charting repeated sightings of mysterious lights moving through the sky. Mapping the movements of these lights over time, they found that the trajectories would often trace back to common points of origin. When they mapped these points and compared them to a detailed magnetic map of the area, they found that the lights would always cluster near a negative magnetic anomaly, a spot where the Earth's magnetic field is weaker in the area around it. And, says Imbrogno, when we visited these sites, we invariably found one of these rock chambers right at the anomaly, end quote. What he's referring to are the mysterious pre-Columbian rock chambers found all over New England, presumed to have been built by Native American tribes. Cornette was able to get access to a state-of-the-art proton processing magnometer from Lamont Doherty Geophysical Observation of Columbia University. When used at the rock chambers, it would always show a spot with a negative magnetic anomaly around it, right outside the single doorway to the chamber. And there's a figure for this in the book, figure 5. As Imbrogno and Cornette questioned local residents, they began to hear interesting tales. A man walking his dog around 11 o'clock one night heard a deep, low hum emanating from the direction of a rock chamber, like the sound of an electronic transformer makes. As he came around a bend into the side of the chamber entrance, he saw that it was dimly illuminated from within by a blood-red glow. Other stories entail ghost-like entities inside of or emerging from rock chambers. And then the image of five is uh, just some magnetic lines on a map 
Um, <laughs> I could read the, the note to it. It's a geomagnetic contour map of the Native American rock chamber in Kent Cliffs, New York, showing a negative magnetic anomaly right at the open doorway, typical of such structures. This anomaly will electrify part of the air as it enters the chamber. Beehive-shaped chambers with electrified air. This sounded so interesting that we brought our own magnometer to the sites to try and confirm the readings of Cornet and Imbrogno. They were correct. The strength of the Earth's magnetic field was always weaker right outside the entrances to the rock chambers. There was no mystery about the source of these negative anomalies. The chambers were built in areas where magnetite was common. Magnetite is a magnetic form of iron, what the Chinese called lodestone, using it as compass needles. Incidentally, the rock chambers discussed in this chapter are located near a 19th century magnetite mine in Clarence Feinstock State Park. A collapsed chamber lies on Magnetic Mine Road. The shape of the interior of these stone structures is distinctive, like a beehive. Most of them are covered with a huge pile of dirt and measure about 15 feet across. The walls of piled stones curve inward as they rise. Each succeeding layer of wall stones protrudes slightly further into the airspace of the chamber until they reach a height of 7 to 8 feet on average. Here the walls stop, and table-sized slabs of stone lie flat over this abbreviated dome to form a ceiling. The archaeological term for this overlapping, inwardly protruding rock pattern is corbeled, corbelled. From inside, they look to us a bit like stone igloos with flat ceilings. From outside, they often just look like inconspicuous pile of dirt having a rock wall with an opening at one side. Some chambers remind us of an old-fashioned ice house. Country estates use ice houses to store blocks of pond ice that have been cut in the winter to be used in the kitchen ice box. An ice house had a conical roof, shaped ironically like an upside-down ice cream cone, because this shape, shape encourages lighter, hotter air to rise and heavier, cold air to sink, thereby keeping the ice blocks on the floor cool enough to last through the summer. We didn't think that the chambers were ice houses, but wondered if perhaps gravity separation of something else was taking place here. We found that the air inside these chambers was not at all normal, electrically speaking. The top few, few feet of the air near the ceiling had a net negative electric charge compared to the more positively charged air near the floor. There's a figure for this, figure six. This is exactly the opposite of the normal fair weather electric field of the earth. Of the common electrically charged air molecules, ions, the most prevalent are positively charged carbon dioxide, which is heavy and sinks, and much lighter, negatively charged oxygen molecules, which will rise above the carbon dioxide. Just like an ice house separates air by temperature, so these beehive-shaped interiors separates air ions by electric charge, in both cases due to differing weights. Furthermore, the readings of our electrostatic voltmeter showed a persistent pulsing inside the chambers. The reading of the electric charge of the air inside would suddenly jump or fall. Sometimes the changes were small, at other times they were large, larger than usual in normal air, indoors or out. So how did this air get electrified in the first place? Part of the answer is that the air is always electrified to some extent. But in the magnetite country, there is more to it than that. 
A basic principle of physics is called induction. It means that whenever anything moves through a zone of changing magnetic field strength, it acquires electric charge or current. Some of the air entering a rock chamber could be electrified just by moving across the changed magnetic field strength at the entrance. The faster it would move, the more powerful the effect would be. And we have found the air to be most electrified on those days that are the windiest. Was this electrical separation and its resultant pulsing the goal of the people who constructed these chambers? This question got our attention because the rock chambers began to look more and more like large stone versions of the apparatus that we are used to seeing to treat seeds in the laboratory. The essence of this technique is to put seed between two large flat metal plates that are electrified with opposite charge, negative on top, positive on bottom, like the air in the chambers. Through a special technology, the charges of plates create electromagnetic pulses in the air between them. As we saw in Chapter 2, seeds treated in this way are improved dramatically in a variety of ways, with the result that more food per acre is produced. The similarities with the rock chambers were too great to ignore, so we went back and tried to find out more. On our second visit, we happened to be struck by beginner's luck while taking flash photos of one chamber at dusk. In plate 17, the photo was taken from across the road, while plate 18 shows a close-up of the area to the left of the doorway in completely unexpected glowing column or arch of white light. If you look carefully at the arch, you can see an inner structure to it. The entire phenomenon is composed of separate, parallel rectangles of white light. Previously, we had found similar structures in other localities with high levels of natural electrical activity. We had also encountered them with other experiments on electrically charged air masses, called plasmas. It was annoying, but not puzzling, when we realized that our electrostatic voltmeter had been fried. Located in an outside pocket of the backpack shown in plate 17, lying directly below the white arch in plate 18, the unit had been subjected to a disabling electrical surge that left its needle stuck near the maximum reading of the positive charge. It was six months before it worked again. From separate, sorry, from repeated experience, we would come to expect electrical equipment problems near the chambers. For example, batteries that would fail to work in a chamber, then work fine again when taken miles away, just to fail again in the next chamber. Electromagnetic Seed Enhancement We were fascinated by the physical properties of these electromagnetic stone structures, so we put seeds inside several of them for differing periods of time, and then removed them. At Pine Landia Biophysical Laboratory in Michigan, Dr. W.C. Levengood germinated them in a standard germination chamber using internationally accepted scientific protocols. We compared both of, of seeds left in the rock chamber to those of control groups of seeds that had been kept in our car at the chamber and also back at the lab. The seeds left in the chamber showed similar, showed changes similar to what we had previously found in our lab using the modern techniques. The larger, a larger percentage of them germinated. They germinated early and grew faster. Finally, they were far more uniform in growth than the controls. 
In these early tests, control lots of seeds were also sometimes placed just outside the chambers, even at the spot where we had previously photographed the glowing arch. They did not show improvement. Something very special was happening inside the chambers. Our experiment was repeated again and again over a two-year period. We consistently found that the chambers would improve seed and that the improvements were often statistically significant. In other words, some of the changes were so large that with a 95% probability, the unusual magnetic, electromagnetic environment of the chamber had in fact done something profound to the biology of the seed. Sometimes the findings were at 99% probability level, meaning the odds were 100 to 1 against this being the results of random chance. During our first tests, we had no idea of how long to leave the seeds in a rock chamber to get good results. Some were left inside for two days, others for just an hour and a half. What happened made us realize that the timing was not a simple matter. Three of the first samples left in the chambers were improved to a level of statistical significance versus the control left in the car. However, a sample left for 50.5 hours was actually harmed to a level of statistical significance. This effect was similar to what we found in our laboratory seed treatments. More of a good thing is not necessarily good. The 50.5 hour sample probably got an overdose of energy. We would see this effect time and again, inside and outside the lab. Clearly, we were dealing with a natural balance here. Some of the effect was better than none, but it wasn't hard to get too much. On days when electrical activity around the chambers were, was particularly intense, we found that seeds left inside for 30 minutes outperformed those left in for 60 minutes, and both outperformed controls in the lab. Testing traditional crops. We decided to try the types of seeds grown locally in the days when the chambers were built. We located a type of traditional corn, which was grown up and down the east coast from about 700 AD onward. We also wanted to try beans because they were another major crop of Native American farmers. And finally we added winter wheat because this is similar to emmer wheat, the staple of the civilizations that built almost identical chambers in Europe for thousands of years. On October 14, 1995, we put winter wheat, some old type navy beans, and Tuscarora corn in two chambers simultaneously. All were improved. They not only germinated faster than the controls, but also grew faster under grow lights for a week, which is as far as they could be taken in the lab. For the beans growth, for the beans, growth was actually tripled. Along with the corn, beans were one of the staples of North American diets. They were farmed along with squash long before corn was adopted from Mexico. When beans are combined with corn, they can constitute a whole person, which means the food can nourish a growing child or adult alike. Another experiment produced results that were particularly striking using low vigor bean seed. The control seed that was kept in the lab had only 50% of its seeds germinate compared to an average of 80% of the different groups of seeds placed in two rock chambers. This advantage would have been of special value to Indian farmers. The germination rates were so low that early European observers reported that they planted five seeds in each hole to ensure that one of them would germinate. This is a substantial waste of what could have been used as food. 
In Europe, academics estimate that one quarter of the harvest had to be replanted as seed, again seriously denting the food supply. We began to notice, however, that determining the optimal length of treatment was not a simple matter. For the winter wheat, 105 minutes in the chamber improved the seed more than 30 minutes more than a 30-minute stay. For beans, two hours was better than one. For two scorora corn, on the other hand, 30 minutes was better than three hours. We began to equate this to cooking meat in an oven. Each type of meat does best at different temperatures. Then even the idea temperature must be maintained for differing lengths of time, depending on whether you are cooking chicken or roast beef. If you have an oven without an accurate thermostat, you have to alter the cooking time. But by how much? If you also lack a meat thermometer, a certain amount of guesswork becomes involved, an intuitive feel for when the roast is ready. The feeling is rooted in experience. A similar intuition was probably involved using the rock chambers to enhance the seed. Of the two rock chambers used in our early tests, we found that either one could outperform the other on a given day. In fact, one chamber might produce no changes in the seeds, while the other would improve them dramatically. This outcome made perfect sense because our readings of electrical separation in the air inside the chambers also varied from day to day. In fact, we began to be able to predict what constituted a good day. If there was a substantial separation of charge in the air inside, and if the electrical readings varied in frequent pulses of significant size, we could generally count on a 30-minute exposure improving the corn. When we found no separation of charge of the air inside, typically in the winter, we would see no effect on the seed at all. When there was no significant pulsing, we got no effect. We cannot emphasize enough that it was only on rare occasions that the effect on the seeds was negative. Before long, we were shown a startling infrared photo taken inside a rock chamber in Ninham Mountain State Park, New York. A glowing mass, shown in plate 19, was suspended in midair. It was invisible to the naked eye, but showed up on the infrared photo. While it is still unknown to science what could account for this light, similar reports do exist in the scientific literature. Our magnometer survey of the chamber showed that it was located on the usual negative magnetic anomaly. In addition, it lay on a boundary where a zone of homogeneous magnetic readings downhill from the chambers met a zone of highly varied readings uphill pattern we would see again and again. <clears throat> the roof slabs directly over the glowing ball were some of the most magnetic rocks we had ever encountered anywhere. Some careful magnetic engineering seemed to have taken place here hundreds of years ago. In chapter 3 we learned that most people can be quite sensitive to minute changes in these natural forces. An average person can detect the magnetic anomalies we found under the right conditions and some people are far more sensitive than others. These chambers were built when the area was inhabited by the Wappinger and Mohegan tribes. Perhaps the Native American farmers, or at least their shamans, discovered about the connection between energy and seed. The following year, we received Iroquois blue flint corn seed from Lawrence Davis Hollander of the Native Seed Conservancy in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Lawrence got his PhD at Harvard in an unusual field. Ethnobotany is the science of study, studying plants grown by ancient peoples and keeping those seed stocks alive. 
We are grateful to his mentor at Harvard, who convinced Lawrence that if someone did not do this, these old plant types would be lost forever. He launched Lawrence on a pioneering road that has shown just how important ancient knowledge can be. Lawrence now spends his time doing things like hunting up farmers on New York's Mohawk Reservation, a few of whom are farming particular varieties of corns and beans that are no longer in commercial use. Then he will hunt up someone else and turn on his considerable charm to convince them to grow these varieties and give him some of the next generation's seeds. On a single day, we put three samples of each bluefin in Tuscarora corn inside three rock chambers. At all three sites, control seeds, control seed lots were placed 100 feet outside the chamber, while other controls were kept in the car and in the lab. Then the blue flint seed was planted and the controls performed consistently similar to one another. However, the 18 lots that had been left in the three chambers had their yields raised in proportion to how long they had been inside. Some of the blue flint corn was placed inside the rock chamber where the energy mass in plate 19 was photographed. Electrostatic voltmeter measurements of the air inside the chambers of the day the seeds were exposed had shown one spot to be much more negatively charged than any other. This was the spot on the floor above which the glowing ball had appeared in the infrared photo. We placed samples of, blue of the blue flint seed on the dirt floor there for 73 minutes. When compared to the five control samples, the sample left longest on that spot in the chamber had 84% more seeds germinate and grow to maturity. The blue flint corn was grown to maturity in the field by Lawrence and his assistants using Native American farming methods. While I was on a follow-up visit shortly after planting, Lawrence's assistant rushed in, flushed with excitement. He blurted out that one row of Iroquois blue, the row left longest in the chamber, was up. They had never seen Iroquois blue emerge like this before. We hurried out to the field where it turned out that 90% of this row was up, uniform in height, looking vigorous. Normally, only 50% of the seed germinates. In addition to the obvious advantage of higher percentage of germinating, seed speed of emergence is of great value to every farmer, because in the early stage of, plants, of a plant's life, it is the most fragile, and the sooner it gets through this stage, the better. Equally important was the fact that the chamber seeds grew far more uniformly. As a result, most of them would mature at the same rate. This is a property of extreme importance to farmers because if a plant reaches sexual maturity too far ahead or behind of its neighbors, it will have no way to pollinate or be pollinated. In that case, it may grow to full height, but never produce an ear. Even with the best modern corn seed, this still happens to a percentage of plants on today's farms. A few centuries ago, the problem was much worse. Both the blue flint and Tuscarora corn seeds left in the chambers did, in fact, have dramatically fewer free radicals than the control seeds when tested by bioelectrode analysis. We expected improvements in the harvest, but the differences exceeded our expectations. As shown on plate 20, 40 seeds left in the chamber produced three times the amount of corn as 40 seeds left 100 feet outside the chamber. 40 seeds left for only 30 minutes in the chamber with the plasma arch produced more than twice the amount of corn as 40 seeds left in the lab. 
of the nine chamber entries all fell within this range. Apparently, the Native American farmer placed the seed inside a rock chamber and left it there for an hour or two. He could have doubled or tripled his harvest. And then there's the images of the described glowing orb in the corn. Native American engineers. Perhaps this is the reason hundreds if not thousands of these rock chambers are spread all over the northeastern United States. More than a hundred clusters between New York towns of Brewster, Mohapec, and Kent Cliffs, Woodstock, Vermont, has striking examples along with southwestern Connecticut. The Gunnywomp Complex in southeastern Connecticut is examined in Chapter 3. Probably the most famous group of rock chambers is at Mystery Hill, often called America's Stonehenge, in North Salem, New Hampshire. Here, carbon-14 dating has shown that the rock chambers originated long before Columbus. In a few cases, organic remains have been discovered inside the chambers, the oldest dating back to about 200 AD. We brought our magnometer to Mystery Hill to find the chambers here also have negative magnetic anomalies at their doors. We are disappointed indeed that these chambers have been largely ignored by American archaeologists. In fact, academics seem to have gone out of their way not to study them. The excuses have been varied, including a dismissal of the chambers as root cellars or storage sheds of colonial farmers. This interpretation is inconsistent with the following facts. The chambers were reported by the first white settlers in some areas. Root cellars are not built at ground level where everything freezes solid in the winter. A colonial farmer would most likely not invest what one engineer who owns a rock chamber was carefully estimated to be six months of labor with a horse to drag tons of stones downhill and use the help of gravity to slide them in place. When that same farmer could have built a log storage shed with a small fraction of the time and effort. We understand that the issue has been clouded by a few chambers that were later modified. For example, in Ninham Mountain State Park, a farmer added cement and 2x4s to the opening of a nearby chamber to put in a door and use the chamber as a storage shed. But such chambers are the exception. In fact, many of the most impressive chambers lie in marshes like Gunnywomp or on mountains in Woodstock, Vermont, where no one ever farmed and no colonial settler lived. Some organizations that study the chambers note that they are virtually identical to dolmens found all over Europe. Their interpretations of the chambers' origins seek to make a connection between the chambers and dolmens. These theories have ranged from druids and vikings to Irish monk explorers, Venetian and Portuguese sailors. Old world residents did erect virtually identical structures. Over a 6,000 year period, thousands were erected from Ireland and Britain through France, Portugal, and Spain, and eastwards as far as India. Dolmens are a phenomenon linked to many cultures. Given what we now know about the capabilities of the chambers, we consider it likely that they were utilitarian structures serving an eminently practical purpose rather than being solely ritual or cultural, and that this was the cause of their almost worldwide distribution. In chapters 8 and 9, we examine the evidence to back up this theory. 
whether their invention arose separately or was transmitted by early explorers, we propose that it was their practical benefits that caused so many to be built. The similarities in design, therefore, could either be from knowledge passed from one people to another, or from the engineering necessary to achieve the desired effect. Strange Sensations at Balanced Rock Balanced Rock is mar a marked historic site located in Route 116 in North Salem, New York. This room-sized, 90-ton boulder is perched precariously atop several small white slabs of granular quartz that rise vertically from the ground and give all the appearance of having originally enclosed a small space beneath the giant rock. At what looks like the door of this chamber, our magnemeter revealed an unusually strong magnetic anomaly. This spot in the intersection of two different areas of homogeneous magnetic fields. On one side of the rock, the land for some distance around has a vertical field strength of 54,200 gammas. On the other side, the land all reads 54,400 gammas. But in the middle, right where the rock is perched, the vertical field strength plunges to 53,800 gammas. This anomaly is not located in the boulder itself, but in the ground beneath. The Earth's magnetic field is quite uniform everywhere, in percentage terms. A 400 gamma magnetic difference is huge for natural objects. Golf ball-sized globes of orange light have frequently been photographed at Balanced Rock. Numerous people who sat up at night at the rock have reported strange sensations and perceptions. It is not surprising to us that the Native Americans were able to recognize this place as special. The historical marker here labels the rock as a glacial erratic. <laughs> it seems improbable, though, that it would have accidentally settled on several connected, upright quartz slabs on the exact spot of a striking magnetic anomaly. American archaeologists generally do not pursue the theory that the pre-Columbian technology could have moved such a boulder. But Ballast Rock is no larger than many of the dolmen capstones in Europe, some of which weigh up to two, uh, some of which weigh up to a hundred tons. And then there's a photo of it. It's pretty dope. You guys should find a copy of this to read, so you can see the pictures. Fertility caves. Wondering how the Native American builders might have convinced conceived of these pulsing fertility generators, we were intrigued to hear the long history of caves in the Mesoamerican cultures that preceded the North American chambers. The Olmec and Mayan cultures, chapter 1 and 4, were the first to start large-scale maize and bean farming, making it possible to give up a hunter-gatherer existence. Their knowledge spread north to eventually reach tribes of the present-day United States. In the Tuxla Mountains of Mexico, the Olmec would often store seeds in caves. Perhaps in this way, they first accidentally discovered the fertilizing powers of the electromagnetic energy of Mother Earth. Like the Olmec predecessors, the Maya regarding, regarded caves at the peak and foot of sacred mountains as the origins of fertility, and an opening framed by human lower jawbones or mandibles was a symbol of this fertility cave. In Europe, Lower jawbones were buried in great numbers at megaliths and henges, as we shall see in chapter 8 and 9. Specially marked fertility pottery full of maize was often presented 
in certain mine caves as offerings to the jaguar fertility god. Such offerings were left there a while, then removed. If those chosen caves were anything like the New England rock chambers, this would be a very effective this would be a very effective procedure when the energies were right. The result would be a seed with an ability to produce several times more food per acre. Certainly the Maya believed that enhanced fertility was obtained by these rituals. In order to commemorate these powers, they built artificial maze mountains, what we call pyramids, near their sacred caves. As we contemplate the prevalence of beehive-shaped rock chambers from North America to Ireland to India to Peru, we can't help but be reminded that the Mayan glyph for fertility is a cave with a beehive inside. Oof. When we first stood in Lawrence Davis Hollander's field and gazed down at our newly germinated seedlings, we were reminded of the Mayan myth of the origin of corn. It is described in the sacred books of the Kichimaha Maya, the Popol Vuh, the sole surviving script of this people, written shortly after their capital was destroyed by Spanish conquistadors in 1524. According to this book, Maze lay undiscovered in a mountain cave underneath a large rock until a bolt of lightning penetrated the cave and split the rock apart, revealing the seed of the crop that was to become the staple diet of tribes throughout the Americas. And that is the end of chapter 6. Next episode will be chapter 7, Mystery Mounds of North America. Um, thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. That was a this whole book has been really fascinating to me. I've always, as you know, if you've listened to the rest of the episodes of this podcast, um, am intrigued and enamored with electrical and magnetic energies and what they can do and what they do do. Um, having this book get to me, I don't even remember how I stumbled across it about growing seeds right after, you know, finding out about the Irving Finkel and his cuneiform deciphering of the boat that Utnapishtim rode to say to survive the flooding of the world. Um, you know, it's very all interesting to me. Try not to read too much into it because I know how my brain likes to like draw conclusions when and themes when there are none but I find it all fascinating and I thoroughly enjoy it and I hope you do too so thanks for listening and uh, if you like this you know tell your friends about it have them tune in Um, stay safe everybody and I'll see you next time